was thinking this week, what we believe can profoundly affect how we behave. I had a friend who believed that flying was dangerous. And so both her and her husband every year are consigned to going to Kildaf every summer. Because what she believes has a massive bearing on how she behaves. Kildaf's lovely. Every summer, 50-something years. There's more to Ireland than Kildaf, of course. I was driving to church this morning, and as I came to the, the main road, and the guy in front of me, he was turning right. He was heading for the golf course, and I was heading for church. Not because, well, probably because I'm being paid to preach. That's one reason, but <laughs> good money. What we believe profoundly affects how we behave. <clears throat> I don't know if there's such a thing as pretend uncles and aunts nowadays. Do you guys have pretend uncles and aunts? Yeah, we pretend uncles and aunts. My pretend uncle Houston, I knew him as Uncle Houston. Uh, when I was a child, <clears throat> he was a really good guy. He went to church and he believed this stuff, I think. And uh, he believed in, in God. Uh, he, he's dead now. Uh, and about a year or two before he died, he had a heart attack. And it was one of those really interesting stories. And I, I spoke to him, Bethel and I spoke to him after it. Um, he had a... His heart stopped, and and um, the, 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 he was he was one of these stories where where the, on the table, and and they were able to restart it. Something happened, some vision, some dream he had uh, that profoundly affected him. Uh, he believed that God appeared to him and put his arms around him. Actually, put his arm around him this way, and and said it was going to be okay when he goes. His wife was going to be okay. And there was something remarkable happened in Uncle Houston that changed how he behaved for the rest of his life. It transformed his faith because what he believed profoundly affected how he acted. Paul, who wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians that were looking at it at the moment, and this is the last uh, in the series, he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And he went from being the man who persecuted to preaching the very message he used to try to destroy. His life was profoundly affected. And how he behaved was dramatically changed by what his belief was. So I'm asking the question of myself this week, what does my behavior say about what I believe? That's not for you to tell me. <laughs> That's for you to speak to yourself, I would suggest. And maybe how passionately I believe it. How much does my behavior tell me of that? In much of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul is writing uh, to correct misunderstanding, wrong belief, 
And the behavior is such that there's division, there's immorality, there's jealousy, there's insults, there's lawsuits, there's marriage problems, there's misuse of gifts. And so it's vital to ground their understanding in truth. And it appears that some teaching was going awry, particularly in the context of resurrection. And for Paul, what was central to his message was the cross and the resurrection. And so all of this book is kind of bookmarked at the beginning, the message of the cross, foolishness to those who are perishing, if you remember in chapter one, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And all the stuff in between, and then he comes back at the end, and the major thing he talks about is the resurrection. And you know what's really difficult is to try to work out how do you speak into the resurrection in one slot. We could do a whole series on the resurrection. But we're going to look at it really briefly, but I really encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read through it and think about it and reflect on it. There's so much in it. There are 58 verses. And don't worry, we're not going to go through that all this morning. But honestly, I'm confident we could do a series on it. So let's, let's pick it up, and we're going to dip in and out of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and we're going to look at a number of different things. But what Paul came across in verse 12, uh, it, it's recorded. He says in verse 12 this. He says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, it had crept in. Some people believed that, well, you know, Jesus has maybe been raised from the dead, but, but we don't get raised from the dead. Our bodies don't get raised from the dead. Uh, and, and Paul was really concerned about this because it was going against the gospel. It was possibly a Greek philosophy that, that had crept in because they believed that the, the, the body and the spirit were two separate things and that everything bad was in the body. So as soon as we died, you know, it, was, it, it had no concept that there would be a body that would go with us because that was, that was evil, uh, they believed. There were also skeptics. There were, the, there were also the, the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and, and, and maybe they were the sort of ones that would have said in the same way in the garden, you know, did God really say that? Did, 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 you know, the same way that the snake in the garden was tempt, tempting Eve. Did, is it really true that this actually happened? And so there were also those who probably believed that their inheritance was now, not untypical in our culture, of this sort of thought that, you know, when I become a Christian, everything will be great, everything will be easy now. And in our society where we get so much, it's more tempting to think that way. And it's what prosperity preachers would have us believe. But Paul wants to set them right. And he starts at the beginning by reminding them of the gospel. Let me read what he says. And this is really important. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Today we're looking at the subject of resurrection. Next slide, please. And we're going to ask these three questions. What happens? Or why is it so important? Why was Paul really keen to get this corrected? Then we're going to ask the question, what happens when we die? And then finally, briefly, we're going to ask, why is this important for me? How should this affect my behavior? So the first question then is this, why is the resurrection so important? And from verses 13 to about 20, Paul deals with this. 
And I'm going to deal with uh, uh, just, just very much cherry pick in here and, and pick out a few things that he says or try to summarize. Verse 16 and verse 17. For if the dead are not raised. So Paul's asking this question. If you're saying we don't, we don't rise from the dead when we die. Paul says in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So Paul was saying, look, Jesus rose. If Jesus rose, you can rise. This was a question of God's sovereignty and authority. If Jesus didn't die, then you're suggesting that he wasn't sinless after all, maybe. Or that his attempt to atone for our sins hadn't worked. Because the wages of sin is death, separation from God. And if Jesus was separated from God, then either he wasn't who he said he was... Or his sacrifice wasn't accepted by the Father. Jesus pointed to the resurrection, however, to prove this was who he said he was. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, he said. We also read in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, this was to his disciples, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus again and again talked about this three days, talked about the sign of Jonah, three days in the wheel. And Jesus said, if you remember, in John 11, Famously, at the, at the, at the time when, when, when Lazarus came back from the dead, resuscitated, not a resurrected body. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, and that's critical, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. You see, if God couldn't do this for Jesus or didn't do this for Jesus, then... If we're starting to question our resurrection, then we're questioning whether or not Jesus rose. But the resurrection of Jesus proved that Jesus was who he said he was. It demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And it shows that God has power, importantly, to rise from the dead. If he can do it for Jesus, why couldn't he do it for you and me? And it guarantees eternal life for those who believe in Christ. So first of all, it's so important because it it calls into question whether Jesus rose or not if we can't believe that we are rising from the dead. Secondly, he's saying, look, without it, everything is pointless. Verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, useless and so is your faith. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're in your sins. You're still in your sins. It all hinges on this fact. Take out the resurrection. There's nothing left. We're left with the consequences of our sins. The sting of death remains. The dead remain. Those who've fallen in asleep in Christ are lost if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So Jesus did rise. But if we don't believe that, everything's pointless. And thirdly, he says this, you call me a liar. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, 
but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. You see, Paul's life was remarkably different as a result of his encounter with Jesus. I find Paul's story more compelling than any of the disciples' story. This was the guy who went from the persecutor to being... If you read 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's faith got him regularly into prison. He was flogged severely, almost killed, 40 lashes less one five times, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, in constant danger from all quarters. He knew hunger, he knew exhaustion, he knew nakedness, he knew sleeplessness. Do you think for one minute that he made this stuff up? From going from what he had nothing to gain if this was not true. And to say that we are not rising from the dead, that Jesus isn't rising from the dead, effectively is calling me a liar. He preached that the scriptures prophesied the resurrection and he often convinced folk from the scriptures. And you read about that in Acts and he points to the Old Testament scriptures and shows them how Jesus uh, was the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus, we read in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, explained to them all that was read in the scriptures concerning himself. We see it in Isaiah 53, we see it in Psalm uh, 22, and again and again there are prophecies everywhere about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and what it all meant. All meant. The evidence was strong. You go back to the beginning of this chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 15, and it talks about all the people who had seen the risen Lord. 20 years later, this was. This book was written 20 You can still ask them, Paul was saying, there's 500 people who saw him raised in the same day. He wouldn't say that if that wasn't true. 500 people had seen Jesus. Most of them were still alive. Even James, Jesus' half-brother, originally a skeptic, he's a believer. Why would I lie? Why would Paul lie? Uh, and we see modern day examples of this where people like Lee Strobel, who was a journalist, brilliantly told in a, in a movie in um, Amazon Prime, if you get it called The Case for Christ. The book is brilliant, but the, the, the movie called The Case for Christ tells his story. Journalist set out, motivated to try to disprove Christianity because he was devastated that his wife had become a, a Christian and he knew this is what it all hinged on. And so he set out to disprove the resurrection and proved it to himself, surprisingly. Same with um, Frank Morrison, a, 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 a lawyer from years ago who died, who wrote, Who Moved the Stone? The evidence is great. I am a false witness if this isn't true, Paul's saying. And the fourth thing, he says this, we are to be pitied. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I sometimes think, you know, being a Christian, certainly in Northern Ireland, has plenty of advantages. There's a respectability that comes with it, isn't there? There's a kind of credibility and a respectability. Um, you know, the, 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 and, and there's lots of good values in our church, and I'm part of a community which, which supports each other. So there are benefits this side of eternity. They don't compare to the other side, but for Paul, the benefits were small. And for our brothers and sisters who are in third world countries or persecuted Christ, uh, countries, this is a very different situation. We maybe face a bit of ridicule, but Paul talks in verse 32, he says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, merely for human reasons. May as well go out, he says, and eat and drink, for tomorrow we're dust. 
But then he says in verse 20, and importantly, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The first fruit was this first sheaf of harvest that was given to God as a token that all the harvest belonged to him. And Jesus was this indication. He was the first fruit of the evidence all of us who know Christ are going to come to him. So for Paul, this was critical, the resurrection. He was convinced by it. He had great evidence for it, not just how he came to faith, but then the evidence of the living Christ in him through the Holy Spirit. So that's the compelling case. What happens then when we die? What's next? I was at two different funerals this week. And it's a very natural question to ask when you're at a funeral. Especially when you're faced with, with, the, with the casket in front of you. What, what, what's next? What, what happens? A few years ago, my dad died and I was there when the soul left the body. What happened to him just then? Paul speaks into this. I came across, I was sent to, to folk at one of the funerals to, uh, this week. A feature in Google allows you to take control of your digital data in case of an accident or death. This is what they say. We hope that this feature will enable you to plan your digital afterlife in a way that protects your privacy and security. I, I really don't give a stuff. <laughs> Bethel should give a stuff, but I don't... <laughs> And so from verse 35, Paul addressed the skeptic um, who, who said, oh, do you know what? You, you, uh, you sent out your body, that, 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 that God's going to take some sort of body. These Greek skeptics, they thought that it was only spirit that was raised from the dead. And, and, and uh, you know, what, what happens if the guy's cremated? <laughs> uh, and, and you spread a bit on the Atlantic Ocean and then you put up, put up the mountains and you, you put it um, as if God's going to go, huh. Atlantic. It's quite deep. Never thought of that. And Paul says to him, we start, we start seeing Paul's response in verse 35. Uh, let's have a quick look at it. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Good question in principle, but ask skeptically. Paul just simply says, you fool. Verse 36, how foolish the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Draw me a diagram. Show me what happens. Okay. So, so how does it actually happen is what the skeptic has said. And so Paul paints a couple of pictures as we go on in this chapter. Uh, and the first picture is one of a plant. And, uh, and we, we see it picked up in the next, in the next few verses. Verse 36, this is the way God works. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You get a seed and it's lifeless and you plant it. And what God does to the seed, he can do to our bodies. He's already demonstrated he can do this stuff. Verse 37 and 38. When you sow, do you not plant the body Sorry, when, uh, I'll read that again. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, 
as he determined, and each to the kind of seed he gives his own body. Scientists still don't fully understand how germination works, how it all comes to life. But God has already demonstrated, this is kind of the way I work. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown imperishable is, uh, perishable is raised imperishable. When we come back, Paul said, we come back in a different form. There is a body, but it's imperishable. It doesn't wear out. And we'll come back to that. But verse 44, he says this. As I, say, I realize I'm going through this very quickly. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Spiritual, supernatural, if you like, adapted to the heavenly realms. So he's saying, look, our bodies will have a new form. It'll be mine. But in the same way that Jesus was resurrected and his body could be seen and touched and he could eat, we're going to have a body for our spirits. We're not going to be like this. Casper, friendly ghost. I can dance. And so he goes on and he, he talks a bit more but about, about this picture of the plant. But I want to pick it up because uh, it enlightens us a wee bit further in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, he gives us another picture. And it's the picture of a tent. Don't forget, Paul himself was a tent maker. And he talks more about our heavenly dwelling. And this is what he says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. We move from this perishable body, this tent, to a house in heaven, from one type of dwelling into another. Now, Paul knew very well about tents. I don't know if you've gone camping. It's kind of cool for a while. Go for a few days. Yeah. Well, no. But for some, yeah. Go for a week or two. Yeah. Go for three weeks. Yeah. Four weeks, five weeks. Yeah. Why is that? It's not really that comfortable. You see, a number of things happen to tents. Over time, tents decay and they get damaged and they leak. Same with our bodies. Over time, we get damaged, we decay, and after a number of years, we leak. <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> Just going to tell this to you now there's nothing you can do about that. We're in a tent, a temporary dwelling. Our brains and our lungs start to decay from 20 years old. What age are you, Callum, now? 20? 19? What age are you? 19? You're still growing, mate. (laughs) It's downhill from next year on. From when we're 40... Our eyes and our hearts start to decay. I spoke to a, an optician a number of years ago who said to me, um, you need glasses. And I said, how could you tell that? Because you're over 40. 
That, 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 that was his definition of why I needed glasses. Our hearing in the mid-50s, it's not very good, sure stuff. <laughs> Male hair loss happens typically in the mid-30s. So I've been blessed that I'm still, that's still to happen to me. I've still got a few up there. <laughs> Apparently everything shrinks from the age of 30. I've seen the Star family read this. Apart from your nose and your ears, everything else shrinks. Now you can, you can add, you can artificially add, or you can add poundage. But effectively, everything shrinks. We're going downhill this tent of ours is not made to last forever. No matter what we do, it is perishable. Bummer. It certainly feels like that more now as I surround myself with old people. It's going to happen to me someday. Meanwhile, this is what Paul says in verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan. Yeah. Longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. We are clothed in our heavenly dwelling. We have this house, not a tent. We have an imperishable thing. Verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is what the message says. He puts a little bit of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. I like that. Even here now, we have a foretaste of what is to come. A preview of coming attractions because of the spirit within us. Something that says it's going to be better than this. C.S. Lewis said, I find myself... In myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable, ex probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We will have a spiritual body. Jesus proved it. It's going to be different in form from this perishable body. Where our physical body is subject to decay, this new body will be imperishable. When... when then will we get this new body? When I was there, when my dad, his, his soul, his spirit left that body, what happened? Verse 8 says this, We are confident, I say, and I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we breathe our last breath, I believe the Bible teaches that we are ushered into a dwelling with the Lord, absent from this body and present with him, present in our heavenly dwelling the moment we die. I would love to go into 1 Thessalonians when it talks about and the Lord shall come and, and the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and there seems to be a kind of how do you, how do you reconcile you know, that body going up at that point in time and, 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 and what happens now. And, and, and there are a number of different possible ways of interpreting that, not least the fact that the other side of eternity were outside time. 
But when Christ returns, the body and soul will be reunited. When Jesus was on the cross with the thief, scandalously he said, scandalously he said to the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise because of grace, because that you have believed in me. We're not going, I think we often think we're going from the land of the living to the land of the dying, but it's exactly the opposite the Bible teaches. We're going from the land of the perishing to the land of the living. 1 John 3 says this, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Paul also talked about this a couple of chapters ago, and he says this, now we only see in a reflection as a mirror, then we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am known. We'll be recognizable, but we'll be different because we'll have lost this tent. So, how should what I believe affect how I behave? What difference does that make? How passionately I believe this stuff. It was, it was powerful hearing yesterday. Uh, the choice of songs that Alma had made for her funeral. It will have an impact on what happens on that day on our funeral. But what impact should it have on me now? I think this is an answer that we all have to ask ourselves. But for those who don't know Jesus, I believe this will be an awful day. Because God has given us this offer of a gift that we can choose to accept or reject. And if we don't want him, he's not going to force himself on us. He doesn't go, please take me, please take me. This is the God of the universe who sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it'll be too late on that day when we wake up after death. But for those of us who knew him, for those of us who know him. How should this affect me tomorrow? Paul was a man who met Jesus in a dramatic way. It profoundly affected him. He also had a vision of paradise. It's recorded in 2 Corinthians 12. You can have a look at it. He was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things wow I would love that to whom much has been given however much will be required Jesus said I haven't had that vision of paradise but I firmly believe Paul did I firmly believe Paul also met the risen Christ and so his life was not based on a lie his life was based on something truthful so, how should this affect me? Imagine that moment. When you die, for a second. 
when you're absent from this body and then suddenly present with the Lord. When everything comes together. When, as a psalmist said, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. When I have hair again. When death has been defeated and swallowed up in victory. The moment when we see inexpressible things. When we are reunited with those who we love who have gone before. The moment we realize that today I am with you, Father, Lord Jesus, in paradise. The moment we realize that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Perspective changes. That hardship that some have to endure in this world that seems so unjust, I believe will seem so meaningless. I will personally probably be ashamed of my petty complaints and my apathy. So, in my puny way, let me suggest one thing. Learn this verse. Set your minds on things above, not on earth. It's going to be amazing. And for that friend of mine who doesn't want to fly, there's a point where she could fly, and all she has to do is take that step of faith and get onto the plane and shut the door, and it's too late then. But there is that point when, 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 when she commits her life in faith. I need to set my mind on things above more passionately to pursue the glory of God, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to see the transformation and renewal of lives. That's what's really going to be important to me when I get this stuff, when I set my mind on things above and not on things on the earth. The end of the chapter, the last verse in the chapter, Paul says this. See if I can dig it out here. In verse 58. And with this I finish. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lord, help us to grasp a picture as we set our minds on things above. It's going to be amazing. And every injustice and pain that you feel now is not going to be felt there. And this amount of time in comparison to eternity is going to seem petty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for your gift of Jesus and the resurrection which demonstrates the power over death, that death has lost its sting and that you want us to be with you in paradise for eternity. Help us to live as people who set their minds on things above. Amen.